0: People of God, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. We will begin reading at verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Let us now go into the presence of God in prayer. Our Father, Thou art everywhere present at all times, and yet in a very special way, through Christ our High Priest, as we offer prayer, we are coming into the presence of the Holy God. And it is with reverence and awe that we approach the throne of grace, it is with boldness and confidence but also with the deepest of reverence. And we ask very humbly that the word of the Lord preached in our services on this day would be used of thee for the ingathering of the saints, that the lost might see their awful condition outside of Christ and trust in Christ alone for their redemption, and that we, the people of God, may may find ourselves communing with the triune God, with great depth and a sense of reality which belongs to us as Christians because we are in union with our risen and ascended Lord. Open the text to us, rivet our attention upon it, and help us to see in this text that the risen Christ was crucified before he was raised in order that we might be justified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. And We will begin reading at the 32nd verse of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. As they went out, they found a man of Serene Simon by name, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, "'This is Jesus, the King of the Jews.' Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, "'You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself.' Reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabatani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, This was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone into the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be, worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, in Gethsemane, our Savior said, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. And the event that Jesus had contemplated with such horror yet with resolve and complete commitment to His Father's will is now here. One of the old Dutch theologians said, think of it this way, that Gethsemane is the threshold." But now, Jesus steps into hell. The scourging and torture seen already has been unspeakably degrading, but there is more here than man's hatred of God and of his Christ. There is what God in and through Christ is doing for the salvation of sinners. As we come to this text, we see the king. For Matthew stresses the kingship of Christ. We find the king humiliated. Usually the condemned man carried his own cross beam to the place of execution. Jesus must have carried it for some distance before becoming completely physically unable to carry it. He's outside the city walls showing his rejection. But think of what it in, he had endured for the, the past 15 hours the upper room, Judas' betrayal, Gethsemane, the disciples deserted him, the trial before the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas, Peter's denial, the trial before Pilate, the scourging by the Roman flagellum, torture, mocking of the soldiers in the praetorium. Jesus is in a weakened condition. He is fully God but fully man. And in his humanity, is, he is weakened, carrying the crossbeam as far as the city gates. And then Simon is pressed to carry it the remainder of the way to Golgotha. Golgotha, the place of the skull. Perhaps because of its shape named Place of the Skull. Perhaps because it was ceremonially unclean, it was called the Place of the Skull. But it was an ordinary place. It's the kind of place where Satan would want him to go. Just get him out of Jerusalem, get him out of the way, get him away from the crowd. Satan would like all men to forget him and to forget his cross. But as Klaus Schilder observed, Golgotha is situated between Mount Zion, representing the law, and the valley of Gehenna, representing hell you catch the meaning, don't you? We can never forget Golgotha, for there our Savior met the law's demands. We can never forget Golgotha, for there he entered into our hell and bore the wrath of God for us that we might never go to hell who trust in him. Jewish custom based on Proverbs 31.6 was to give wine drugged with myrrh to those about to be executed. And we read in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Why would he not drink it? I think the answer to that is that he must endure completely the experience of our hell. He must bear our curse consciously in our place. But there are some who offer another explanation of this, that the soldiers in offering him wine mixed with gall, which was not a narcotic, made an offering of the drink so bitter that it was undrinkable, and they intended it to be undrinkable, this argument goes. In other words, the soldiers are purposefully tormenting him with drink that was undrinkable. And like his father David in Psalm 69, he found no sympathy. And there they crucified him, and they crucified him in utter humiliation. This is the Lord of glory. He is obedient to to His Father's will, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And He must know utter humiliation. The One who is the Eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, came down, down, down. The Infinite One came infinitely down, and there is utter humiliation. For this is the way slaves were put to death. Our word excruciating still captures the idea of the torment of the cross. You know, I spent some time last evening reading in archaeological materials about the crucifixion. I, I will not repeat it. What our Lord endured was a bloody reality. Just to say the victim would constantly attempt to bear himself up from suffocating, the bleeding from the scourging and the nails, the constant agony, the breathlessness, all of this was a part of our Savior's suffering. But in addition to this humiliation, there's the shame. Romans crucified their victims naked, naked, the sinless Son of God, naked on a cross. And remember from the Jewish perspective the horror of it all which should be our perspective as well as we understand it in view of scripture from Deuteronomy 21:23 that a hanged man was under the curse of God. And that's it, isn't it? That's what this is all about. The heart of it is that Jesus is bearing the curse of the broken law for sinners for whom he is substitute. He is paying the price of our sin to deliver us from hell. He is bearing the curse that makes us completely unacceptable in the holy court of God. He is bearing the curse to make us completely acceptable in his merit and righteousness in the holy court of God. The divided, They divided his garments among them, casting lots. Unknown to them that they are fulfilling the very psalm that was read earlier by Pastor McNeil and that we sung just a few moments ago, Psalm 22, verse 18. God is in control. And this is to be remembered as the great paradigm of our suffering, that even in those things that are inexplicable to us, God is in control. The Apostle Peter preaching on the cross at the day of Pentecost said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The prayer that was offered when Peter and John had been imprisoned in the fourth chapter says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross is no accident. Sinful men are fully responsible for their sinful deeds, and yet God purposed the cross and our salvation. He is incomplete complete and sovereign control. Even at those times and in those things that seem to us to be chaotic and completely out of His sovereign control, He is in sovereign control. But we also see the King, the great King, the King of the universe, the King of our souls, the King now mocked mercilessly by these sinners. The inscription that is found in verse 37, over his head, they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was placed there in order to mock the Jews. The Romans had no idea. They were heralding the truth. This is the King of the Jews. God speaks His truth through the sinner's mockery. The wrath of men shall praise Him. And there are the two robbers. Who were crucified with him, one on his left and the other on his right. And maybe we are to remember James and John wishing to sit at his left and at his right in his glory. Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And so they mock him in verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In the same way, because those who passed by mocked. In verses 39 and 40, and those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he will raise the temple in three days, he will raise the temple of his body after three days. Psalm 22, 7 and 8, that very psalm we read, All who seek me mock me. They hurl their insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him, since he delights in him. If you are the Son of God. And through their words, they are intending to insinuate doubt. They are trying to get Jesus to evade the Father's will and to avoid further suffering. If you are the Son of God, come down. Even now, he could call legions to deliver him. Back in chapter 26, when he is taken prisoner in Gethsemane, allows himself to be, he says in verse 53 of Matthew 26, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will send me more than 12 legions of angels? Have you ever thought about what that means? Eric Sauer, German Evangelical, mentions in passing this comment of our Lord Jesus. Without any difficulty, he could have prayed the Father for twelve legions of angels, which surely would have been granted him. We can hardly imagine what that would have meant. When God in the days of Hezekiah saved Jerusalem, which was attacked and much oppressed by the Assyrians, he sent only one angel out against this strong military might of the Assyrians, and this one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and officers in one night. You can read about that in Second Kings 19. Now, Jesus declares that had he only wished it, whole legions of angels would have come to his aid to destroy his enemies. The word legion is taken from the Roman military use. The Roman legion on a war footing consisted of 6,000 soldiers. So this would mean, if we express ourselves in modern military terms, that heavenly armies to, order, to the order of brigades and divisions would have come to his aid. And only a single member of these ten thousands of heavenly warriors would have destroyed in one single night hundreds of thousands of his enemies. If only Christ had wished it, but he did not wish it. He knew that the vicarious redemptive sacrifice could be offered only by holding firmly on his way of suffering and so bringing redemption to the world, and therefore he remained on the way of suffering. Therefore, he held out until the goal was reached, until the hour of the death on Golgotha. He would cry victoriously, it is finished. If he comes down, we are all lost. The chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked him, verses 41 and following. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And you hear the laughter behind it, don't you? They're laughing at him. They are mocking him. And look at their religion. These fine, upstanding Pharisees with their external religion. Their, as one old author put it, their their jewelry is paste. Matthew wants you to catch the double entendre there in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He could not save himself and save sinners from our sins. Only if he does not save himself does he save others? And they mock him as the Son of God. They mock him as the King of Israel. Let him come down, and we will believe in him. But if he comes down, he does not shed the blood of atonement, and there is no atonement for sin. The Scriptures will not be fulfilled. God's purpose would fail, which cannot be. O Jesus, we adore Thee upon the cross, our King, Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires, for he said, I am the Son of God. They could not know this is the Son of God, and in some inscrutable way, the Son of God is the sacrifice of our sins, is forsaken of his Father. Now, from the Roman perspective, there's nothing important about this at all. Just one more criminal, one more execution, one more Jew crucified one crucifixion among many just a way to preserve the public order of the pax romana tacitus reviewing the troubles in judea comments under tiberius nothing under tiberius nothing happened the world always misses the really important the historical event planned by the triune god before all eternity is happening here through which God saves sinners, Christ bearing the divine judgment. The world passes it by, scornfully blasphemes, laughs in the face of the Son of God. They always miss the world in its worldly perspective, always misses young people. The world always misses what is really and truly important and significant. And what is important is, we see thirdly, the priest sacrificed... There's darkness from noon to three. Why this darkness? Because we read in such passages as Amos 8, 9, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's a prophecy of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment to come. And it is the judgment day on all of the sins of all of God's people through all of the ages. In Exodus, there was the last plague. The Lord kills the firstborn, and now in judgment, Christ leads us out of the darkness by by His sacrifice as He Himself is engulfed in that darkness of judgment, sacrificing Himself for our sins. And now, when the devouring angel comes to destroy us, the blood of Christ is over the doorposts of our lives, and there is now peace. The infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that we, the worst of sinners, can be completely forgiven through his infinitely valuable sacrifice. Who can tell the agony of these hours? He bears the hell of his people. God is saying to his own son as sin bearer, you be the adulterer, you be the murderer, you be the thief. The holy son of God, please hear it, the holy son of God is sin in God's sight as the sin of his people is imputed to him, credited to him in our place. We see the physical, but the en- enduring of the, the wrath of God within His holiness, His holy soul, that's what was absolutely and totally crushing. Matthew records the cry of dereliction in verse 46. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very first verse of the psalm 22 that we read earlier. The experience of Gethsemane now comes to completion. He is alone. There's no one with him. He's in the darkness and he quotes his own words spoken of him by prophecy long ago. Schilder in his great work on the sufferings of Christ his trilogy says, we can say now that he was in hell as the perfect stranger. He did not belong here. He could not acclimate himself to that place. How do we understand this? How do we understand these words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What is happening here? He hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she understood. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echo less, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy lips amid his lost creation, that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. He cried, why have you forsaken me, that you, believer, may never cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So the priest now is mocked as a prophet in verses 47 and following, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Sour wine that the soldiers had for themselves was given to him to drink, probably not here as an act of mercy, but to prolong his agony. They're mocking and prolonging the agony. Because we've so domesticated the cross, we don't understand the scene. We should never minimize the physical suffering of Christ, but we also should remember the great issue here, is Jesus is bearing the wrath of the eternal God against my sin, the sins of His people. On the cross, there was more than met the eye. In the darkness that prevailed when no man could see, Jesus endured in body and in soul those unknown sufferings, things known only to Him. Thank God that we will never know. And He did it willingly as the old theologians used to speak. This is the whole-souled suffering of the Son of God. Willingly. And we see that willingness, especially as we look at the fourth thing here, victorious death. Because we read in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And we know from... John's gospel, he cried out, it is finished. Matthew simply says he cried out again with a loud voice. The gospel writers record only certain things that are intended for their purpose in God's revelation. But he yielded up his spirit. He gave his life. No man could take it from him. So listen, at the moment of forsakenness by his father, when the cruel torture was at its height, Jesus sovereignly gave his life in an atonement for sin, and it then was finished. And the cross was, in reality, his royal throne. And the victory is seen also in the curtain. The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that part of the temple into which the high priest went once a year in order to make atonement, pointing to the coming of Christ. The the curtain was torn by the hand of God, not as things typically unravel from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. God himself in his sovereignty tore it. Jesus, our high priest, has entered the veil for us. The death of Jesus has opened the entrance into the presence of God, no matter how deep your sin has been, no matter the corruption of our nature, no matter how deep our depravity, no matter the ugliness, sheer ugliness of our rebellion against God, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, it is paid for in full. As the choir sang about three weeks ago, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And Jesus is now the new temple, the meeting place of God with man. The victory is also seen when the tombs were emptied. Verses 52 and 53. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The earthquake, of course, being a symbol of God's presence as seen at Sinai and of the judgment as we read in the book of Revelation. A great sign of the victory of the cross, of the resurrection of Jesus that will take place In just another chapter, and of access to God. And it says that the salvation of those dying before Jesus came, their salvation is totally dependent on Jesus, just as those of us who come after his cross are saved completely by his atoning work. The age to come has now entered into this world. And the victory is seen in the Roman centurion's confession and others who were with him. In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And a Gentile was the first to confess him. The darkness, the earthquake, the cry, most of all, the noble demeanor of the Lord as He suffered on the cross evidently were used of the Holy Spirit to convince the centurion and others with Him that this was the Son of God. The Jews miss it. The pagan sees it. This is the grace of God. And the women are there doing what the disciples should be doing. They were the last at the cross. They will be the first at the empty tomb. Think on the glories of the cross. That God has created man upright and man has sinned and there is a breach and such a breach that we hate the God who is. Let me ask you who are unconverted, who do not know Jesus Christ, do you realize that God is infinitely holy? Do you see that you are hopeless and helpless without the one who paid for sin on the cross? Believer, Do you understand that because of the cross, there is not one drip of wrath that remains for you? That the Lord says, because Jesus paid the price of our sins, the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall never depart from you. The glories of the cross, God is holy, but the last of the law's threatening has cracked over the, the head of the Savior. And God says... Peace. But then finally, we see our Lord buried. Our Lord buried. Tacitus said people sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. An hour or two before the Sabbath would begin, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who himself had his own new tomb that had just been dug out of the rock, came and made a bold request of Pontius Pilate that he might take the precious body of Jesus. And the women follow him there, and that explains how the women know where to come on resurrection morning. And Matthew also mentions that, as I said, he was a rich man, fulfilling, of course, Isaiah 53, 9 through 12, so when we recite in the creed, was crucified, dead, and was buried, it's important that we include the burial. It occurred. This is not myth. It is certain. It happened in time. It happened in a certain place. The tomb was sealed it seemed irrevocable. Jesus was really crucified. Jesus really died. He really was buried in a sealed garden tomb. And the grave points to the fall. It is part of the humiliation that Jesus must bear for our salvation. As someone has said, and since the mediator had been appointed to suffer humiliation publicly, the grave must necessarily be a part of this complex of shame and disgrace. It is a public demonstration of the fact that the Son of Man is dead. Is really dead. And Pilate, Pilate, we want to seal the tomb. Because he said he would rise from the dead. And Maybe his disciples will take his body. You have a guard probably referencing the temple guard. You just seal it up. You seal it up tight. You seal it up securely. That's right. Seal it up. Seal it up tight. It doesn't matter because death cannot keep this prey. Jesus in the tomb, three days, my heart leaps into my mouth as I think of Easter Sunday morning. And we await the next chapter in this history. We await what we already know to be true Jesus rose from the dead.